keys. Okay, church, let's pray, and then we'll jump into our study here. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the incredible grace that you have shown us and continue to show us each day. Well, how we love your truth, O oh God. You have been sanctifying us with it, and we ask that by your mercy you would continue to do so tonight. Help us to rightly understand these doctrines and your word so that we'd be able to not just know it, but grow in our affection for you even more. And help us, O oh God, to not also just be intellectuals, but to be those who would take what we know and to live and to do the word, not just, not just hear it. Do all of this for your glory, O oh God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we have been going through chapter 7 of the Second London Baptist Confession of Divine Providence. Um, so what we're going to do tonight, we're just going to round off this chapter, which only has one more sentence. And then after that, uh, we'll, we'll take some time to review, because that will conclude chapter 5. We'll take some time to review everything that we've covered so far in chapters 1 through 5. That'll be much more conversational. So get your thinking caps on. But first, we'll take a look at this continued discussion of divine providence. And we'll just note this one thing tonight. It's in your outline. It's that God especially takes care of his church. God especially takes care of his church. Read that quote with me right under the header. As the providence of God does in general reach to all creatures, so after a more special manner, it takes care of his church and disposes of all things to the good thereof. So the idea here is that this, the providence of God, which is defined as basically God's working in the universe after creation. So after he said, let there be light, his ongoing work of carrying out his decree in creation. And that does, in general, reach to all creatures. We've We've seen that in this study so far, where uh, two paragraphs before this, it was all talking about how God's providence works in the Christian's life and how he will often leave, let Christians continue on in their sin for the purpose of bringing them to him, closer to him, greater dependence of him. And then the next paragraph about how he will let unbelievers continue to harden themselves and continue to run further away from him and that's judgment on them. So the statement ties a bow on it and says that his providence reaches all creatures. In that same way, after a more special manner, God's providence takes care of his church. So he has a special plan for his people, a special love of his people. And he disposes of all things to the good thereof. So everything that he allows to happen throughout history or plans to happen throughout history is for the benefit of his people. Praise God. What's that verse that y'all know that we say all the time that he related to the idea that he works all things for the good of his people? What is that? Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28. Let me read it real quick. Hey, Brother Cedric. Romans 8.28. I just want to say real quick, thank you, brother. Um, Cedric covered for me last week. I listened to it. Praise God. That was very encouraging, brother. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So Paul very narrowly says, 
who it all works out for good for, not just everyone, but specifically for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. That's the same people, right? So let's expand this idea a little bit more that God has a special care for his church. And when we say his church, I'm talking about his people. 1 Timothy 4.10. 1 Timothy 4.10. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul has just been encouraging Timothy to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Uh, He tells him to uh, have nothing to do with these irreverent, silly myths in verse 7. He calls him to train himself for godliness while saying that bodily training is of some value, but you're not going to have this body forever. But however, godliness is in value every way because it holds promise not just for this life here, but for the life to come as well. And verse 10, Paul says, for to, th- for to this end, we toil and strive for godliness. We toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. And then the following phrases are what we're focusing on at the moment. Who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, some people will take this verse, yank it out, and promote what? Universalism. Look, it says right here, he's a Savior of all people. But if you look at the whole Bible, if you look at the context of the entire New Testament, you will see that that isn't the case. It's very dangerous to take one verse and then develop your entire doctrine around it. Okay, you want it? The Bible interprets itself. So you have to look at this and the reality that when Christ returns, he's going to separate the sheep from the goat. And the um, high priestly prayer where he says, I don't pray for the world, I pray for your people, right? So there is a, we, we, we can't take this and say that just God saves everybody. But we do have to examine what does this mean? He's the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Well, there's a couple explanations of this. Uh, this word especially can be translated namely and that would read who's a savior of all people namely of all those who believe so he's basically saying all people specifically those who believe in him but i think a more natural reading of this text is to just embrace the idea that jesus christ is the savior of the world he is the messiah sent to our earth to save people from every tribe tongue and nation He wasn't sent only to save the Jews. He came to the Jews. They rejected him. And the plan was that from there he would go out and express the kingdom of God to the Gentiles as well. We talked about this before in Isaiah where in that time of history, God's presence, God's law, God's prophecies were, were isolated to one tiny part of the earth in the Near East. But now in Christ, the kingdom of God has been preached to the ends of the earth. And we are still going to unreached nations and unreached language groups, but take that comparison of how small and isolated was God's people to now seeing it blast all over the world. Thanks be to God. So there is a reality that he is a savior of all people. He is the Messiah that was sent to us. Similarly, in John 10, 11, it talks about how he came to his own, but his own did not accept him, didn't receive him. And so, there is a real sense that he was sent for them, even though they didn't believe. And in the same way, he has been sent 
to the whole world, that the gospel would be proclaimed everywhere and that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would be able to believe in him and be saved and worship him together in heaven. So there, here's an example of how God does uh, extend his providence to all creatures, but specifically in special manner, he takes care of his church. He takes care of those who will believe in him. Okay, let's take a look at a couple more places. Amos 9, 8 through 9. Amos 9, 8 through 9. If you get lost on the way, it goes Hosea, Joel, Amos. Hosea, Joel, Amos. Amos 9, 8 through 9. In this prophecy, Amos is prophesying the destruction of Israel. Um, we've seen, in, as we've been looking through church history, or rather Old Testament history, how both Israel and Judah had rebelled against God, Israel being the northern kingdom, Judah being the southern kingdom, and Amos is foretelling the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. And here's what it says in Amos 9, 8 through 9, starting in verse 8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. This is talking about Israel. The sinful kingdom in this verse is Israel. And it says, behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon them. And by the way, when, sometimes when you talk about God looking upon you, that, that's a good thing. But this is not the kind of God looking upon you that you would like. God is looking upon this sinful kingdom for judgment. It's a very terrifying place to be. We see that clearly in this middle part of verse 8. And I will destroy it. I will destroy the sinful kingdom Israel from the surface of the ground. So he's prophesying that he's going to destroy Israel as a geopolitical entity. Except, verse 8, that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. Now, how did, who knows, how did God actually fulfill this destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel? What did that look like? Yeah. Uh, that's a good guess. That would be the southern kingdom of Judah. Do you know what happened to the northern kingdom? Yeah, Assyria came in, and uh, the king had originally come in and took the city of Samaria, the capital, and said, you just need to pay me a tribute. The city rebelled against the Assyrian king and said, we're not going to do that. And so the Assyrian king laid siege to the city of Samaria for three years. And then from there, he took the people, the Israelites, from that city and just kind of scattered them to different cities of Assyria. And so from there, Israel as an entity no longer existed. The southern kingdom of Judah remained, but Assyria, uh, sorry, Israel as an entity no longer existed. That being said, that didn't mean that there were no longer Israelites. And that's the idea here in middle of verse 8. Except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. God's will was that while Israel as a whole would be destroyed and scattered, he would keep for himself a remnant. And that's the idea here. In verse 9 he continues, For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve but no pebble shall fall to the ground. So imagine, um, imagine that you have like corn in a sieve, which is like a flat uh, strainer. And in order to get the, 
the grains to come out, you have to, you have to shake it violently. Okay? And from there, what will come down is the grain, and that's what's being scattered. But what will remain are like pebbles, and that's what's going to remain in the sieve. And God is using this illustration so as to say that while Israel is going to be violently scattered across Assyria, he would still keep for himself a remnant. So again, even in, this, even in this, these verses, we see God working providentially to both the wicked and also his own people. In fact, in verse 10, he says, All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. So he was judging them to destruction, to be under the Assyrian uh, sword for their destruction. But he would keep for himself a remnant. There would be no pebbles that would fall to the ground because they would stay in his sieve. Make sense? One more, Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, verses 3 through 5. Yes. Yeah, so in this illustration, uh, he's using this sieve, which is like a flat strainer. And the, what they would do to get the grain it's separated from the rocks and the chaff would be to shake that violently. And what he's saying is the pebbles that remain are like his remnant, essentially. The rest would be scattered across Assyria, but he would keep for himself these pebbles. Yeah, good. You got it. So here in Isaiah 43, the context is the southern kingdom of Judah in, cap, in Babylonian captivity. And God is promising them again that he will save them. And in verses 3 through 5 of Isaiah 43, he says, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, so he's reminding them that when they pass through the waters, he's going to be with them. This is verse 2. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. So God is promising protection of them. And the reason why he's promising protection of them is, I am Yahweh, your God. I am your God. I have made a covenant with you. I am the Holy One of Israel. I am your Savior. So again, he is, uh, he is working out providentially specifically for his people. He even goes on to say, I give Egypt as your ransom. Cush in Seba in exchange for you. Now, there's a little bit of different ideas about what this is talking about. One is that it's possibly talking, referring back to the Exodus, where in that situation, God chose Israel and rejected Egypt, right? So he saved Israel out of Egypt and destroyed Pharaoh and his armies. He also sent many plagues to plague the Egyptians. But more likely what's going on here is this, this idea that you are, you are worth this much to me that I would be willing to give up anything to ransom you out of there. I give Egypt as your ransom. I give Cush and Seba in exchange for you. He is, he is buying their freedom, and he's willing to give up these nations. And by the way, um, we've talked about Cyrus, who was the king of Persia. He conquered Egypt. And then Cyrus didn't conquer Cush and Seba, but uh, his successors in the Persian Empire did. And so again, God is showing favor and he's showing providential care and love for the, the exiles who are in uh, Babylon. And he is willing to pay Egypt for them, or rather give up Egypt for them, give up Cush and Seba in exchange for them. Because, verse 4, you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. 
That's why God was doing this. He, they were precious in his eyes. Question, were they precious in his eyes because of their own goodness? Certainly not. They're in exile because of their idolatry. They're in Babylon because they're being punished. And yet he was, they were precious in his eyes. They were honored. It's a great honor to be chosen by God. And I love you. He says, I give men in return for you. Peoples in exchange for your life. Their freedom was not free. It cost something. It cost Egypt, Cush, and Seba. And while certainly that expresses great value to his people to say, I'm giving up these nations for your sake, what was the ransom price for sinners like you and me? Jesus Christ, God's only son. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, for you, he didn't just give up Egypt. He didn't just give up Cush or Seba. He gave his only son for you. His perfect son for you. His beloved son for you. Because you are precious in his eyes. You're honored and he loves you. He gave his son in return for you. His son in exchange for your life. Then he says, fear not for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west I will gather you. So he's promising them. Remember, they're separated. Not everybody went to Babylon. They only took the, the best and the brightest to Babylon. They left some people in Jerusalem and in the outer outlying areas. But God's intention was for them to be gathered once again. And that's what happened. When Cyrus went in, King Cyrus of Persia went into Babylon and and. And, and delivered Israelites and said, you can go back to Jerusalem, he gathered his people back together from the east and from the west. This is the idea. And again, as incredible as this deliverance and ingathering is, it's nothing compared to what he would do in Christ. This is what we're looking forward to. Like right now, Christ is already gathering a people for himself as people all over the world are being saved. But all of that, the end, the telos is that we will all be gathered together to worship him together, singing with a multitude how worthy is our God. That's the end to which we're going. So again, we see the way that he works specifically and specially for his people. He providentially works in everybody's life, but his purpose is to show grace to his people for his glory. So God especially takes care of his church. Knowing that information... How should that affect the way that you think and live? That if you're a Christian, God especially worked for you providentially throughout history. Michael? It yeah, it should cause you to be grateful. Amen. Good. What else? Yep. Daniel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it could allow you to go through suffering well, knowing that he has been showing you incredible grace, especially in suffering. It should give you confidence, absolutely. Confidence in uh, what specifically you're thinking? In our journey, yeah. Like, what, where, where is the end that we're going to, is what I just described to you, to have that confidence. Yeah. Sometimes in our suffering, we may wonder, does God even love me? And that question, guys, is so absurd. He gave his only son for you. What else does he need to do 
to show you that he loves you. There is no greater way. And yet even the suffering that you are going through is still related to his son because he's making you into Christ's likeness through all of it. So we should be grateful. We should be confident in this. We should live accordingly, knowing that all of it is for our good. And of course, we should praise him. So God especially takes care of his church. And that wraps up our chapter on divine providence. So now we are going to take some time to just do an overview of everything that we've learned so far in chapters one through five. The questions are on your guide. We are probably going to be skipping some in the interest of time, but I encourage you after class to consider these questions yourselves. And if you don't know the answer to them, to find the answer, find out the answer to them. So on chapter one of the Holy Scriptures, what does it mean that the Holy Scripture is sufficient for all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience? Specifically that word sufficient. What does that mean? Yeah, Emmy. Yeah, amen. And we don't need anything else besides um, the books and the Bible. Good. Uh, what's another, what else would you add to that thought? How is it sufficient to saving knowledge, faith, and obedience? Sufficient for saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. It is what, it is what saves. That's right. Yeah. It, um, he's, he's, Paul writes to Timothy in First Timothy, that this or Second Timothy, that the scriptures are wise to save you, right? Or are able to make you wise for salvation. Absolutely. It really is. If you want to know how to be right with God how to live for God, everything that you need to know about God that he's revealed to his people, it's right here in the scriptures. I remember I was in a debate, like not, not a debate, like a comment war. I shouldn't speak it up so highly. A comment war <laughs> with a Roman Catholic. And it's like, that's the problem with you prots, Protestants. You think the Bible's all you need. I'm like, amen, amen, mea culpa. I'm guilty of that. I think the Bible's all we need. Because in order for them to come to purgatory or praying to Mary, they have to just rely on the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church. But unfortunately, now the reality is men are sinful. A apart from any kind of written authority, we can get a lot of things wrong. Think about how many doctrines in your life that you've had wrong at some point. We need the scriptures as the final authority, and it really is sufficient for all that we need. Let's look at it. Let's skip down to number four. What are the benefits of having God's revelation written down? In other words, why not just have constant prophets and personal revelations? Why, why was the benefit of having it actually inscripturated? Cedric. Right. Yeah, because men are fickle, right? I mean, think about the denominations of Christianity that started out solid, really good doctrine, 
And then they just kind of started winging it, and now they're totally just off. That, that is our nature, and so we need this. Um, I think it was Isaiah uh, at some point, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but there were these false prophets among Israel that were saying all these things that were not true. And the prophet, if it was Isaiah, says, to the testimony, in other words, to the word. Let's go back to the word. They, the reason why they have no light is because they don't have the scriptures, is what he says. And so that is our, our nature, is to just kind of make things up as we feel. And so God has been so gracious to us that he has actually canonized his word to us. And when we hear something, we can go back and compare it. Is that true? Let's look at the scriptures. That's what the, um, the Bereans did, by the way, in Acts. Paul the Apostle was preaching to them. And our tendency is when our, when our favorite preacher's up there preaching, uh, as Cedric put it last week, the me, your mediator here on earth or whoever you like to run to, sometimes it's like, well, if they said it, it must be true, right? But the Bereans didn't do that. And they had Paul the Apostle teaching them. And as Paul the Apostle's teaching them, they're like, oh, this is good. Let's check it. And they, and they kept checking what he was saying. That's, that's what we should be doing as well. But the fact that they would check the scriptures implies that that authority was, was final. They were testing everything Paul said against the word of God, right? Yeah, amen. So God has greatly blessed us by having this. And also it's amazing to think that we have the same truth as all of our brothers and sisters have had for thousands of years. Like we have had that here in the same scriptures. We're united with them in that. And let's look at number six. So we're, we're making this claim that the scriptures are the word of God. Why do you believe that the scriptures are the word of God? Why do you personally believe that? Because Ed said it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, right? Yeah, Mike. Uh, for me personally, it, it has to deal with the prophecies of the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Amen. So just seeing the prophecies. And and by the way, God intends for that to be validating his word is to show uh, prophecy fulfilled. Yeah, David. No errors or contradictions. contradictions. Anything that's challenged as a contradiction has already answers that have been answered for thousands of years now, right? Yeah, Leslie. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you have something like a few dozen authors from different walks of life. Let's say that they were like part of this secret society of Bible authors. Then yeah, they would probably just borrow from each other. But we had everything from a prophet, we had Moses, we had a tax collector, we had a Pharisee, and they're all writing the same story. It's incredible. Yeah, Corey. Pastor Corey. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right. Amen. That's like reality. That's our world. That actually works. It doesn't sound like other myths. Mm-hmm. And then the other reason is because when you, when you read it, it sounds like it's history. Mm-hmm. And, it, and so it corresponds with what you see happening around the world. Amen. 
So Pastor Corey said two things. The first thing is that all the heroes of the Bible are terrible, right? I mean, it's true. I mean, the, the apostles, like the people we look up to and we, and we look at their teachings, when Jesus was being crucified, they all fled. Peter uh, encountered this little girl and he said, I don't know him. I swear I don't know him, right? And then, and then they weren't even waiting at the tomb a few days later saying like, oh, he promised to come back. They were still hiding. And the Bible says that women found him, which to us is normal. But back then that was like, oh, women found him? Not you guys, right? So yeah, and David, the, probably the best king of the Old Testament, definitely the best king of the Old Testament, committed murder, committed adultery. So yeah, that's a good point. And the second thing you said was, it reads like history. And it is reliable. Like, they can go and look at the scriptures and say, ah, okay, here it is. Right. Yeah. You s- oh, I'm sorry. It was Anita. I'm sorry. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, um, because it's so relevant and it, it pierces my heart and it's yeah. just, I mean, it's relevant, yes. How is it that something written thousands of years ago can pierce us so powerfully? Some people will say things like, oh, that thing was, that was just written by men thousands of years ago but we recognize that it's not, right? And that actually, yeah, one more, yeah, Lou. So a couple things. You said that um, the manuscript evidence is, uh, is unmatched. There is no other ancient writing that is attested to like the scripture is. And um, we've got over 10,000 manuscripts, some of them complete, some of them partial. They're all saying the same thing. There are some differences, but 99 point something percent of them are just like spelling errors, missing words. But if you compare them to each other, you can actually find out what actually belongs and what doesn't, right? Or rarely you'll have sometimes in your Bible, some manuscripts don't have this, right? Summarize that second one for me, Lou. Right. Oh, in terms of like the witnesses, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right on. Yeah, so in our legal system, you need to have witnesses, corroborating evidence, and that standard, Lou's saying, is way lower than the actual evidence and corresponding witnesses that the Bible provides. Now, these are all great things that you're saying. Um, The reality is, too, is that if you are saying these things to someone who does not believe it, 
I, I remember making a, a very cohesive argument about Genesis 3, the promise that was made, and I unpacked that promise throughout the Old Testament to say God is showing how he's going to crush the serpent's head and save the seed of the woman. Um, or rather, that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, sorry, and that uh, Abraham's descendants would bless the whole world. So I go through all of that, and it's like my heart's singing because I'm reviewing over the Bible, and I was like, I mean, does that make sense? He's like, no. <laughs> I'm like, and then someone else, you know, I, I'm telling him all these manuscript evidences, and he just won't believe it, right? So while all of those things are great for our comfort, and say, this is great, we have a reasonable faith, we can say that it makes sense why we believe this, but in the end, the reason why we believe the scriptures is because the Spirit of God attests the truth of it to us. And that was true when you heard the gospel. The Spirit woke you up and you believed. And now when you read the word, to Anita's point, you read it and you're like, ow, ow, that hurt. Oh, that's really good. Because the Spirit of God is doing that work in you. Amen. All right, let's jump down to number 13. Why is God worthy of all worship and obedience? It's going to be a long answer. It should be. Why is God worthy of all worship and obedience? Yeah, Emmy. Because he created all things, and all things are created for his pleasure. Yeah, amen. So for starters, he made everything. He made everything for his glory. He made creation to cry out to him. He made us to worship him, right? Why else? Julian. Yeah, he's good. Right. Yeah. He is good because, well, goodness is defined by who he is, right? It's his rules because he is the creator. And yet, it's not as if, like, let me just, uh, let me speak like a fool for a second. Let's say Zeus. Let's say Zeus was, was God. He's not, for the record. But let's say that he was. And therefore, everything that Zeus is, is good. There'd be terrible things that are good. Zeus would just impregnate people, right? Zeus was murderous, he was adulterous, but if he were the sovereign, then we'd have to say, well, I guess that's good. But we also know in our hearts, that's not good. So there's, not only is everything, is, is he good, but he's also pleasing to those who have eyes to see. Like there is, everything about him is beautiful and wonderful What's, and selfless, yeah. Yeah, amen, amen. Uh, so he is actually good, not, not only in the sense that He's good because every goodness flows from him. But we, when we have eyes to see, we look at who he is and you say, he's amazing. Not everyone thinks that way. The demons apparently don't think that he's good. And you hear unbelievers talk about God like he's the worst ever because they just disagree with his judgments, right? But we know by the spirit of God that he is perfect. He is holy, holy, holy. So he is worthy of worship and obedience. Let me um, go to number 14 real quick. What are some of the false ideas about the Trinity that are out there? Yeah. Uh, same being with different hats. Daniel, did I skip you for the last question? I'm sorry. Oh, same thing. Okay. So, yeah, we have um, this idea of modalism that God is simply shifting. I'm, he's the father at this point. He's the son at this point, And he's the spirit at this point. That is an error and a heresy called modalism. What else? 
Yeah, Lou. Yeah, so Arianism, that the idea that the Son is, is God, but he wasn't always there. Like, he, he's, he be, became begotten at some point in history, and so he's lesser. He's not equal with God, at least not in, in the divine essence. What else? Michael, and then Julian. Right, so basically each person of the Trinity is a third of God. The Holy, this is a false. The Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son. Like, they're not God individually. They're part of who God is. And that would be, I think it's called partialism. And it also creates three beings, essentially, right? Did I see another hand up somewhere? Julian. You skip? All right, pass. Leslie. Right. Yeah, I I think that's. I forget. It, it may be the same as modalism in a way. So H two O. It's the same. H two O is the same thing, but sometimes it's ice, sometimes it's steam, sometimes it's water. The problem with that is H two O can't be all of those things at the same time, right? Um, and they're they're very different in terms of the substance. So, yeah, uh, it's different. I I I can. Um, sympathize with the desires to try to understand the Trinity. And it really is a lot easier to, to say what the Trinity is not. So a lot of the statements about it are, are saying these heresies are wrong. But really, all we can say from Scripture is that we have one God. We have only one God, perfect in his being and his essence. And he subsists in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is 100% God, and so is the Son, and so is the Holy Spirit. They are not each other, and we have one God. So hopefully that cleared it up for you. <laughs> yeah, he, there is no one like him, and that's, that's why it's very difficult to try to— you sh I haven't found an analogy that works. I don't think anyone has, because there is no one like him. Yeah. Yeah, so we can't understand something so complex because it's like a 2D trying to look at a 3D image. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, I catch myself sometimes saying before time, before creation, there's no such thing. God was not in time before he created. There wasn't like a time in history where he created. It, okay, yeah, Pastor Corey. Yeah, so uh, it's like disuniting them in redemption. So, and I've, you know, you probably maybe have thoughts like this too, where you're like, man, God is still so mad at me. 
And were it not for his son holding him back, he would destroy me. But you have to remember, the father is the one who sent his son for you, right? And they're the one, the father and the son are the ones who sent their spirit forth that you would believe this gospel. So they're all working, the, the Godhead is working together for your salvation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And um, that was something from the G3 conference was really, really, really good as well. Um, th- there's this idea that the Father already knows who he's going to save, right? Because he has already foreseen who his elect would be. He's already given them to his Son. So God's purpose is to save that elect, the Father. The Son's purpose, this is, I don't agree with this, but this is what some people think. The Son's Father, the Son's purpose was to save everyone, okay? So in this case, Jesus' desire is that all would be saved, but his Father's like, I'm sorry, Son, I'm only saving my elect. And then the Spirit is only saving those who willfully believe. So all three, in, that, in this theology, all three of them are doing, or have three different purposes, the Father wants to save only his elect. The Son wants to save everyone. And the Spirit will only save those who freely choose. So that, that don't add up. In Texas, that dog ain't going to hunt, right? <laughs> so instead, what we see in Scripture is that the Father chose his people, sent his Son for those people, and the Spirit woke up those people, right, and continues to do so. See a hand up somewhere? Uh, Julian and then Cedric. Ah, yes. Uh, eternal subordination of the Son. Very um, problematic to say that the Son in his being was subordinate to the Father for all eternity. But then, that, again, that makes him somewhat less. Um, that, that's a problem. That, again, separates the persons too much. I always, like, even now, as we're talking about this, I'm like, I feel like I'm towing the line in heresy. This is how challenging this doctrine is. Yes, Oh, Cedric, yes, I'm sorry. Cedric and then Pastor Corey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, we should stop where God has revealed, whatever God has revealed. He says that the secret things belong to him and the things that he's revealed are for us. But we don't want to go beyond that, right? Uh, Pastor Corey? Oh, right. We want to square the box and dot all the I's and the T's on everything. But the more comfortable we are with paradox, mystery, and all these types of things, we don't, the necessity to try 
Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we try to understand everything, and that sometimes puts pressure on even Christians to think, if I can't explain him, then it must be wrong, and then they try to come up with something else. But that's not who God is. He is unsearchable. Yes. Say that again, brother. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Lou. Yeah. So paradox, just a, a good running definition, is that two realities that seem like they contradict, but if you look at it more closely, then you actually see that they, they're, they're not enemies. They're actually friends. They yeah, they flesh out a deeper truth. Yes, sir. Yeah. Justice and mercy. Mm. Yeah. So justice and mercy, they don't seem like they go hand in hand. And yet, in God and specifically in the work of Christ, justice and mercy on the cross, right? Good. Um, which actually, let, what, let's think through real quick, number 22. So this doctrine of God's decree, here's this paradox. Did God, from eternity, already decree everything that would happen in history? Or are we making real choices every single day? It's both. It's both. And it seems like it 
it seems like it doesn't work, but it actually does. Because God doesn't, even though he's decreed everything to happen, the confession says, which is supported by the Bible, that God doesn't do violence to the will of the creature. So you came here tonight. That was something that God decreed from eternity. But at some point during the day, you were like, I want to go to church today. Like you didn't receive a, a message or like you were driving here and you're like, oh, I don't want to go. Like you, you were doing what you wanted to do. But it was decreed by God from eternity, right? So number 22 asks, why is God to be praised and admired for this doctrine that we see in the scriptures that he decreed all of history from eternity? Why is God to be praised and admired for that as opposed to despised? David. Nothing's out of outside of his control. Amen. Yes, sir. Yeah, he's ultimately wise. Anything that happens, he knows better than we do. Yep. Right. Yeah, so he works out things for his glory and for our good. Like, let's say that he did everything um, for whatever he wanted to do, but just steamrolled over all of us. That's not how God operates. He does everything that he wants, and it benefits us. It's incredible. Sajur. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Jesus, Cedric says he he got saved. Jesus loves him. What a, what else? Like all that stuff is fine, but like what else do we need? Yeah. What else do we need? Right. Absolutely. And it also, like, if we, if we rightly understand who we are, if God did not decree that we would believe, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have. Just knowing who we are, knowing who I am, even as a Christian today, I still will often run away from God. So were it not for his decree, then, then I would be lost. So thank God. Uh, let's look at number, I don't want to skip chapter four. So let me think here. What attributes of God are seen in creation? So Romans 1 says that God's, the divine attributes are clearly seen in creation. What, what can be seen about God in creation? Emmy. Yeah, so just seeing um, order, like Fibonacci sequence, um, intelligence. Yeah, if you study math, you go one of two ways, according to my wife, because she got her master's in math. There are some who kind of think themselves to be their own gods, because like, look how much we're uncovering in mathematics. But if you're a Christian, you're like, man, God's design is awesome. Everything is so orderly. Lori, do you have your hand up? Romans one twenty. What? Is it? Yeah. Good. So his eternal power and divine nature. When you look at creation, you're like somebody. Somebody made this. That, or you just think that everything's random. 
And then when you realize just how fine-tuned everything really is and how perfect it is and how unlikely it was to chance, then you just come up with something like, oh, there's probably an infinite number of universes and we're just in one of them, right? That's, that's how amazing God's creation is that they can't deny how unlikely uh, by natural processes we are. Like even thinking about like, so let's say, yeah, just random things, someone crawls out of the slop and then they d evolve and then an asteroid hits the earth and then the earth recovers on its own. Like that's just, I don't know, that takes, that's way too much faith for me to believe that. Mike? <laughs> yeah, it sounds, for some reason, it's easier to believe that there is some other sovereign that we're in a simulation or that aliens planted us here without questioning, where'd the simulator come from? Or where did the aliens come from? It's a lot easier to try to think for some reason. Well, I know why. It's because of sin. But um, to embrace God and instead come up with different myths and things. I saw Anita, yes. Yeah, God is so good. God is so loving. Like he takes, look at like, people are worried about the overpopulation of the earth, which is just another way to say, look at how he's provided for all these humans, right? And like the Bible says that he clothes um, the flowers and he feeds the little birds and we see that to be true. Yes, world hunger exists as a result of the fall and as a result of sin. But ultimately it's like, man, look how he has provided for his creation. It's incredible how he's done that. Um, good. All right, let's jump down to, what time is it, 7.39? God's divine providence. So if God's decree is essentially from eternity, God saying, here's what I want to happen. And then God's divine providence is his working out his decree in history, right? Explain how God isn't merely just allowing things to happen. He's not merely doing that. He does allow things to happen, but it's not just like, Huh. Okay, yes. Right? Lou. Would it be cheating to read scripture? It's not cheating to read scripture, no. It's an open book test. First Chronicles twenty nine eleven. What would you be your main uh, takeaway from that? Sovereignty. God's sovereignty over all things. Good. Right. Amen. Yeah. So, yeah. Caleb. Right. Yeah. Um, that's a great point. It's, he's not just like, 
doing damage control. He says something's going to happen, and it happens. Now, again, he doesn't, do, he doesn't violate the will of the creature. So everyone's doing exactly what they want. In that sense, there is free will. Everyone just doing what they want to do. But they're doing what they want to do based on their nature, right? So here's, here's an example that always amazes me. And then I'll go to you, Pastor Corey. Uh, was that, were you raising your hand? Yeah. Um, in order for us to be saved, uh, Israel needed to be preserved, right? Um, so we're in this situation where Joseph, he's got a really good coat. And his brothers hate him for that. Because his dad, he's his favorite son. They hate him for that. God allows, if you will, Joseph's brothers to plan to kill him, but instead just throw him into a pit and then see slavers. And God allows for them to pull Joseph out and sell him off into slavery, right? And then you know Joseph's whole story. He became uh, the top servant in Potiphar's house. Um, And then God allows Potiphar's wife to seduce him, and then after he rejects her, to accuse him of assaulting her, he gets thrown in prison. God has allowed all of this to happen, right? And then um, he interprets some dreams in prison. Later on, Pharaoh has a dream, and then Pharaoh's servant is like, oh, you know what? Didn't someone interpret my dream in prison? And then that allows Joseph to be released from prison and therefore warn the Pharaoh that there would be a seven-year famine after seven years of plenty. And because he warned him of that, Egypt stores up grain. And because they store up grain, not just Egypt is fed, but even Israel is fed. Even Jacob and his sons are fed. If Joseph, in other words, tying it all the way, if Joseph did not have a good coat, Israel would have died off. And if Israel died off, you and I wouldn't be saved. And God wasn't going through history saying, oh no, uh, what do I do? This was planned from the beginning. And he, he unfolds history in an incredible way. Pastor Corey. Yeah, so saying that, just to summarize, uh, God has used unbelieving nations to accomplish his purposes, like Assyria, for example. It says that he, he calls Assyria his servant, and yet they don't even know. They're not even doing it for him. So they're accomplishing God's judgment on Israel. Uh, they're scattering of them, but also setting up the fact that there'd be synagogues in all these different places worshiping Yahweh, so that come time, the time of Jesus, it's a very easy transition to go to these various places to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. I mean, all of it is just, inc- even the fall, right? Um, 
God did not tell Satan, God did not tell the serpent to go tempt Eve. God did not tell Eve to eat. He actually told her not to do that. But God knew the serpent was slithering around. God made the tree right in the middle of the garden. If he, if, if he wanted to preserve their free will and yet not let them fall, he could have put that tree in some high mountain or something that they'd have a three days journey to get to. But it's just sitting right there. And he allows the serpent to go and tempt her. So even that was planned. And if there was no fall, there'd be no savior. So this is God's story that he is writing. And it's just incredible. One more thought and then we'll pray. Yeah, Julian. Yeah. Yeah, great point. And just to touch on that first one. So Paul, uh, he's, 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 on a, he's a prisoner on a ship, and there's a major storm. It's not looking good. Paul is not at all worried because God told him that he would get to his destination. And so he's not concerned by that. And that's a great illustration for us as well because we know where we're going. God has told us where we'll end up. And so we don't have to worry as we're here. But another cool thing about that story is that even though Paul knew that, and said that, he said, God's going to preserve it. But you need to run the ship aground. In other words, like, they weren't just like, and just kind of coast to the destination. Like, you actually need to, first of all, you need to not let those people leave. They need to be here in order for us to survive, even though God had already guaranteed that it would. So there again is this paradox, this tension. Was God going to save them, or did it require these other causes of these men staying and running the ship aground, et cetera. It's both. It's both. Um, all right. Good stuff. Again, there were so many questions we didn't cover, and feel free to plumb the depths of Scripture to find them and, and send me questions if you get stuck on any of them. Let me ask the Lord to help us and to praise Him. Oh, Father, oh, these things that you revealed to us, how glorious they are. How incredible you are, O oh God, in all of these things. How amazing it is that you left us your word. And even though uh, for many of us, we've read passages over and over again, every time we visit it, you show us something new and you illuminate it to us by your spirit and amaze us afresh. Just to imagine, and not imagine, but to meditate on who you are and on to discuss the Trinity together and to, to think about your decree and your creation and providence, it, it both comforts us in what we can understand and still also leaves us absolutely flabbergasted and wondering. And so we're grateful for both of those things, O oh Lord. Help us to never lose wonder in these things and help us to worship you in response to all of it. Not just worship you, but to proclaim your excellencies to the end of the earth. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Great job, everyone. Thank you.